Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Hi, everyone. Forgive my voice this time around. I've got some sinus thing going on. So if I sound raspy, please, I apologize. Okay. When we left you last week, we mentioned that we weren't eager to profile Joseph Barbos. So much has been written and recorded about him. But since we're profiling specific men and events to highlight the connections between them and dad's world, we decided we had to include a standalone episode about him. I chose the title Dying to be Made because Barboza wanted nothing more than to be a made member of the mafia, and his not being Italian made that an impossibility. He had some fantasy that if he had become the best hit man, he would be made an exception to that rule. People died so he could be made, which of course never happened. And you have to assume that he turned state's evidence not because the mob was trying to kill him, but rather as his revenge for being made an outsider, no matter his insane efforts to become part of the fold. If you've been listening throughout the season, you've heard some stories about Barboza already. Today, we'll give more details about those events, but if you want to go back and listen to those episodes, we'll put the links in the show notes. We'll also include some maybe lesser known details about him. Before we get into his background, I want to mention that no matter how vile, depraved, and ruthless some of the men we, we are profiling may have been, they were still humans. They had families, friends, and lives outside of their criminal activities. We've received emails from descendants of both the law enforcement officers and the criminals we've been profiling, all of them willing to share further information about their loved ones. Some of our listeners might not agree that we share anecdotes and more lighthearted stories about these men, but it was part of their lives. As a daughter of one of those men, I always try to keep in mind when writing these episodes that children and grandchildren of our subjects might be listening, as well as the relatives of their victims. We're here telling their stories. Yes, we share our opinions, but we're not here to be their judge and jury. But in the case of Barboza, it is very difficult to humanize him. His nickname, The Animal, says it all. This individual killed for the sake of killing and bragged and boasted about it. The lives he took, both with a gun or whatever weapon or with his perjured testimony, were not mob beefs that were being settled. They were irrational, paranoid, and erratic actions taken by someone who had no right walking the streets. I recently read an article written about Barboza where the author stated he would never harm women and children. What? utter bullshit. He was willing to burn down Spike O'Toole's house with his mother in it and said it would be her fault if she died in the fire. He terrorized a family in a car that accidentally cut him off, smashing the windows while threatening to rape the man's wife and kill their children. Later, he used an 18-year-old girl to dispose of the body of one of his victims and then wanted to go back and kill her. It is impossible to have any sympathy for Barboza, but the system not only failed him, but it failed his victims by failing to protect them from him. The man was clearly unhinged. A prime example of what I mean is Ethley Bailey's account of what happened when Wimpy Bennett brought Barboza to his office. Bailey asked Barboza to remove his hat. Barboza flipped out because Wimpy, who was bald, was allowed to keep his hat on. Bailey kept his hand on his thirty-eight in his desk drawer while Barboza made obscene threats and stormed out of his office. He returned with tears streaming down his face, pleading for Bailey to represent him or he would go to the can again. Bailey would later say that Barboza was the worst human he'd ever met. Well, he would know Bailey defended more than a few of them. 
I also want to note that we will not be covering the murder of Teddy Deegan in its aftermath in this episode. We are dedicating episodes 29 and 30 to Teddy, his murder, and the men who were wrongly convicted of his murder. We'll end today's episode when Barboza entered the witness protection program. Later this season and into the beginning of season two, we'll be covering the aftermath of his treachery. Okay, let's get into Joe's story. Joe was born on September 20th, 1932 in New Bedford, Massachusetts to Joseph Barboza Sr. and Palmyra Camilla, both of whom were first-generation Americans whose parents had emigrated from the Azores. From all accounts, including Barboza's own, Joseph Sr. was an abusive father and husband. The former boxer was quick to lose his temper and raise his hand to his wife and kids. It should come as no surprise then that Joe was arrested at 13 years of age in 1945 for breaking and entering and sent to the Lyman Reform School. In December of 1949, Barboza and his friends were arrested for breaking into 16 houses in New Bedford. They had stolen watches, money, booze, and guns. He was sentenced to five years and a day for the B&Es in February the following year. There must have been something in the water in Boston in December of 49. How many of these guys that we've covered recently got arrested that month? David Glennon, Richard Barchard, Louis Aquila, and now Barboza, and one woman to link them all, Dorothy. Hey, they were all very busy. Well, Joe wasn't too busy after that since he was sitting in the Concord Reformatory along with Richard DeVincent and Bernard Zinna. If you listened in last week, you might recall their names. We'll get into them a little later. With too much time on his hands and near the end of his sentence, Joe led a prison revolt and escape. He and six other inmates were getting drunk and high off of goofballs. For our listeners who don't know what a goofball was, they were usually barbiturates of some kind. The escapees would later claim they purchased the booze and the goofballs from a guard prior to their rampage and escape. They beat up a gas station attendant in Concord, stole his car, and nearly blinded him in the process. Barboza and two others headed to Revere Beach to hit up a bar for a couple of drinks before making their way back to the Orient Heights train station in East Boston, where Barboza and his two companions were arrested. On May 19, 1954, Joe was convicted for his short-lived prison escape and sentenced to 10 to 12 years. His fellow escapees sentences ranged from two and a half to eight years. He was made chairman of the five-man inmate council anyway, but that didn't stop him get from... That didn't keep him out of trouble. In November of 55, Joe slugged a prison guard in the jaw. He and two other inmates were placed in solitary. The guard would seek charges of assault against Barboza the following day. A couple of months later, on January 19th, Dr. Daniel Levinson gave Joe a psych eval. His report stated that Barboza had an IQ between 90 and 100 and could perform moderately skilled occupation. The following month, he was moved to Walpole State Prison. Along with him was Frank Martin Feeney and six other troublemakers. Two years later, in March of 58, Joe was once again subjected to a psych eval. This time, Dr. Saltzman diagnosed Barboza with a, quote, sociopathic personality disturbance antisocial reaction. There is always a great possibility of further antisocial behavior in the future, unquote. A much more accurate analysis of Joe's mental state. Less than four years into his 10 to 12 year sentence, Joe was released. On July 12, 1958, he married Philomena Termini, and the following month he began boxing again. He was scheduled for another fight on September 8th, but instead he was arrested two days prior during an attempted B&E. He was charged with the B&E and for possession of burglary tools in the Bristol County Courthouse, but he wasn't sentenced until November 14th when he was given three to five years. It is unclear whether he was released on bail or held because he was still on parole. So our big question is, did he kill Vincent Biddy Vaza? 
A diminutive former boxer and reportedly a strong-arm loan shark, Vaza was last seen at about 10.30 in the evening of September 9th. The authorities narrowed down the time of death to between that time and 6.30 the following morning when a woman reported seeing Vaza's car parked on Bremen Street in East Boston near the docks where he ran his operations. The car remained in that location until Friday afternoon when Vaza's brother came to retrieve it after getting a phone call from a neighbor. Ralph Vaza told the cops that he noticed that the back of the car was riding low as he turned into his driveway. When he went to open the trunk, Ralph found his brother's beaten body strangled to death with a rope or an electrical appliance cord. Vaza had been struck twice in the back of the head, which probably incapacitated him prior to the strangulation. His wallet was missing, but a three-carat diamond ring and expensive gold watch were still on his person. The authorities believe that the wallet wasn't stolen for money, but for a contact list. The Revere police speculated that he had been, quote, murdered in a house and then his body placed in the car early Wednesday morning, unquote. It's a tight timeline considering Barboza was picked up on the 6th, but the method in association makes us both suspicious. Do any of our listeners know if Barboza was on the street at that time? You might recall from episode 19 that Vinnie Teresa was arrested in that same month for conspiracy to violate the Small Loans Act. 20 secret indictments were handed down to 10 men. The state, said that the accused had built more than a half a million dollars in exorbitant interest rates and forced many of their victims into crimes to pay their debts. Considering that Vinnie and Barboza were tight with each other, we strongly suspect that it was Barboza who killed Vaza or someone in Barboza's crew at Vinnie's behest. The M.O. is just so similar to the Hannon murder in 1964. But either way, Joe was back on the street by September of 60 when he was arrested for making threats. He paid a fine and moved on. He got a job as an assistant manager at Scooterland. In June of 61, he was fined for having no inspection sticker on his car. In May of 62, he was arrested for speeding in Dorchester and fined. You'll recall that later in 62, Jack Kelly found Barboza and Dorothy Barchard in their mutual lawyer's office. Dorothy fled the room in some state of undress, and Barboza was hanging their attorney, John Fitzgerald, out the window by his ankles. To relieve the tension in the room, Jack made a joke and got Barboza to free Fitzgerald. Barboza plopped Fitzgerald on the floor and asked if he had seen Dorothy. Jack proceeded to tell him that she had run down the hall. Barboza and Fitzgerald continued their relationship, as did Dorothy. It would later cost Fitzgerald his leg. Joe divorced Philomena on April 22nd the following year. She was 16 years his senior. They'd met while he was in prison when she began writing Joe letters. In Joe's twisted mind, he believed that since she was Sicilian, if he married her, that would help him get made. So much for that scheme. Shortly after the divorce, Joe remarried in Maine. His new bride was Jewish, and Joe had to have a bris in order to convert. He would later say that his circumcision was the most painful experience in his life. Following his bris and a possible trip to the mikvah, he was married by a reformed rabbi and took the surname Baron. What that had to do with his conversion is beyond me, but he would continue to use that surname. No comment. <laughs> what, you don't want any botched birth stories? <laughs> uh, that's for another time. Well, besides his loan sharking operation, Joe was also technically employed from 64 to 66 as a salesman at the Shaman Insurance Company, and he was a payroll clerk at the Blue Bunny Lounge and Duffy's. His salary was $100 a week. I assume he was working to satisfy his parole requirements, but that didn't take up all his time. Supposedly, in December of 64, Buddy McLean recruited Barboza to track down Punchy McLaughlin, but that didn't pan out. 
On January 25, 1965, Joseph Francione became the 18th victim of the gangland war in the Boston area. He was found shot to death in his kitchen in Revere. He was an ex-con and had been questioned previously about the Plymouth mail robbery. Just like in the Brinks case, pretty much every half a wise guy in the area was brought in for questioning. I wonder what the exact dollar amount was that was spent on the Brinks and Plymouth investigation. Surely it was more than what was actually stolen. Well, we know the authorities spent something like three times as much as what was stolen to bring the Brinks case to trial. You have to figure it was a similar amount in the Plymouth job. On February 2nd, 1965, the wiretap at the Coinomatic picked up Raymond and Henry Tamilio gossiping to one another about the recent murder of Joseph Francione. They speculated that Joe was the killer. Barbosa made a trip of his own to the Coinomatic on May 18, 1965. He was there to ask permission to burn down a triple-decker in order to kill Spike O'Toole. He was gunning for Spike because he was aligned with the McLaughlins, and Barboza was with Buddy McLean. The story that Buddy met Barboza in Norfolk isn't possible. Barboza was paroled in April of 62, and Buddy didn't arrive at Norfolk until October of 62. So, so much for that tale. Anyhow, Barboza had been unable to catch Spike off guard. Now, keep in mind that Spike had been living with Dorothy Barchard, and Dorothy had been sleeping with Barboza, and was also still carrying on with their attorney, John Fitzgerald. So, who knows what the real motive was, but I doubt it was his bromance with Buddy. Barboza told Raymond that he planned to pour gasoline in the basement of the house and set it on fire, and thus either kill Spike by smoke inhalation or fire, or in the event that he climbed out of a window, Barboza would have two or three individuals there with rifles to kill him as he emerged from a window or door. Upon questioning by Patriaca, Barboza said that he had planned to cut the telephone wire so that Spike could not call for assistance, and also to ring false alarms in other sections of the city so that the engines could not respond quickly. He also explained that the third floor apartment was vacant, but the first floor apartment was apparently occupied by Spike's ill mother. This caused no concern to Barboza, who stated it was not his fault that the mother would be present, and he would not care whether the mother died or not. Patriarca told Barboza that he didn't think it was a good idea to carry out the hit that way and attempted to dissuade Barboza from killing innocent people. It was unclear whether Barboza accepted Raymond's objections, but Raymond was vehemently against that type of killing. Well, he didn't accept Raymond's judgment because less than two weeks later, the police received a phone call at about two in the morning. There were two men parked in a car on Spike O'Toole Street in Dorchester. Someone had removed pieces of paper from a trash barrel, piled it against the wooden three-decker where Spike was living with his mother, and ignited it. But the fire burned itself out, and Spike remained inside. The two men who were parked outside fled, but the police caught one of them and accused him of unlawful possession of a firearm. On June 1st, two men, one from Braintree and one from Norwell, were brought into court for illegal possession of a shotgun. They were the two that were spotted outside of Spike's home. The Braintree man was fined $200. The following week, the man from Norwell was sentenced to one year. Spike finally went on the lam in July, hiding out on the Cape from both the cops and the assassins. On July 9th, 1965, Barboza killed Romeo Martin. We'll get more into Romeo's background and his murder in future episodes. Romeo's claim to fame was that he escaped from prison by hitting a home run. He just kept on running. The police finally caught up with him as he was attempting to climb inside the second floor window of a college girl's dorm in Roxbury. When I was little and I'd hear the guys talking about Romeo, I thought it had something to do with Shakespeare. 
Stop. <laughs> True. Spike wasn't the only Lamister in the bunch. Jimmy Flemmy was also on the lam as of September 4th, 1965. The following week, Barboza was arrested for beating up a cop with a pistol in the Ebb Tide Lounge in Revere. The judge in the case accused the MDC police of using high-handed tactics against Barboza and his co-defendant. He reduced their bail from 25000 to 2000 When the judge discovered that Barboza's co-defendant was a fugitive from New Jersey, he rescinded his bail, but Joe was free to roam the streets once again. On September 23rd, Barboza pleaded not guilty to the charges of assault and illegal possession of a firearm and was released. The trial date was scheduled for November 29th. While Barboza was out on bail, Ray D'Astasio, a McLaughlin gang associate and bartender at the Mickey Mouse Cafe in Revere, and John B. O'Neill, an innocent bystander, were killed on November 15, 1965. It was 5 p.m. in the evening, and O'Neill was just in the store getting cigarettes. Jimmy Flemmy was arrested in the early morning hours of November 19th. He'd been in the lam for two and a half months. Brookline and state police detectives took Jimmy into custody after finding him hiding in a closet in an apartment on Hamilton Road near Commonwealth Ave. The official version of events was that the cops had come to the apartment to serve a warrant for a motor vehicle violation. When they knocked on the door, a male voice replied that the person they were looking for wasn't there. Cops ordered the man to open the door or they'd use force. Johnny Mutterano opened the door to the cops. A search of the apartment commenced and a state trooper wearing civilian clothes opened the closet door and pointed his gun at Jimmy. Oh my God, I've never been so close to death, Jimmy exclaimed. I have my doubts about that version of the event. It seems more likely that Johnny led them to Jimmy with Rico's help. I have to agree with you. He probably wanted Jimmy out of his hair. The press ran an article on November 21st claiming that the authorities believed the rash of killings was related to the Plymouth mail heist, but that had nothing to do with it. We know that the killings were linked to which side of the fence you fell on, McLaughlin or McLean. But I also believe that Rico and Condon were equally to blame as they were leaking information to the McLean allies and fanning the flames. Well, without any doubt, they were feeding them names, locations, and who to take out. Back to Barboza's trial. On November 26th, the ADA petitioned the court for bail to be increased to $100,000 for Barboza's safety, saying that if he remained free, Barboza would be dead before the trial commenced. The ADA produced an MDC patrolman and a statey to testify that they talked to Barboza in a Revere restaurant on the evening before Thanksgiving. Barboza told them that there had been an attempt on his life in Revere and two others in East Boston. But when put on the stand, Joe vehemently denied that he had made such a statement to the police. In a separate petition to the court, Al Farisi said he couldn't represent Barboza because he was already representing Joe's co-defendant, John Casiliano, a.k.a. Rocco A. Conti. The judge allowed him to withdraw and F. Lee Bailey replaced him as Joe's attorney. Barboza's bail was raised to $100,000 and he was remanded into custody and shipped off to Charles Street. On December 10th, the bail was reduced to $35,000, but he was unable to raise the additional funds. The judge set the trial date for January 3rd, 1966. On January 16, 1966, Barboza was cleared of all charges except one, disturbing the peace. He was sentenced to six months in the House of Corrections. On May 26, 1966, McLaughlin ally Cornelius Connie Hughes was killed. Although it was only five months from Barboza's sentencing, he was already on the street because of receiving time off his sentence because of good behavior. The following month, on June 16th, Rocco DeSiglio was murdered. If you listened last week, you'll remember that Joe made an anonymous phone call to police officer Fawcett, telling him the location of DeSiglio's body. 
In August of 67, Jerry Angelo, Bernard Zinna, Richard DeVincent, and Mario Lepore were charged and tried for the murder of DeSiglio, and the key witness against them was Barboza. We both believe that Barboza killed Rocco because he told the cops the exact location of the body, and then, out of spite for the men he felt snubbed him because he wasn't Italian, he provided false testimony against them. Jerry and his co-defendants were eventually acquitted. Back to 1966. On July 25th, Barboza and Chico Amico were arrested for the stabbing of Arthur Pearson. Pearson had been found barely alive in his car not far from the ebb tide. The stabbing took place in the tiger's tail. Both Barboza and Amico were in possession of marijuana when they were picked up. Bail was set at $100,000. On August 4th, charges were also bought against Nikki Femia and Patrick Fabiano, and the victim was being held for, on $100,000 for his own protection. Pearson was also a fugitive from justice in California, and why they didn't send him back there is beyond me. On September 23rd, two more McLaughlin allies were killed. Stevie Hughes, the brother of Connie, and Sammy Linden were shot to death. It was not the first attempt on Stevie. He had been shot five times the year before. If you listen to episode 19 about the Top Echelon program, you'll remember that Jimmy and Joe had been seeking permission from Raymond to kill Sammy Linden as early as May of 65, but Joe Lombardo found out and was livid that they wanted to kill Sammy and intervened on Sammy's behalf. I still don't understand how Lombardo and the other old-timers allowed Jimmy, Flemmy, and Barboza to run wild. They knew they were dangerous in more than one way, but yet they allowed them to run amok. Jimmy Flemmy had been sentenced to a four- to six-year bid for jumping bail back in March, so he couldn't have done it, and Joe was still in pretrial detention. Well, assuming Jimmy wasn't out on a weekend furlough. Well, they didn't have the weekend furloughs yet. Well, it was a drive-by shooting at two in the afternoon. Who does that sound like? Johnny Moderano and Stevie Flemmy. And that's who I think did it. Johnny Moderano had pleaded guilty to har- harboring Jimmy in March and was sentenced to six months in the can. He would have already been out by September of 66. We have three episodes dedicated to the hits between 1964 and 1966 scheduled, so we'll provide more details about them when the time comes. Mafia Encyclopedia Extraordinaire, Vinny Teresa, alleged that it was Joe and Chico Amico who killed Sammy Linden and Stevie Hughes, but that's impossible because he was still being held on bail for the Pearson murder attempt. However, three days after the Linden-Hughes double homicide, Barboza was freed after a bail reduction hearing. Femia and Chico Amico were freed on bail the following day, and Pearson refused to testify against his attackers. On October 3rd, 1966, Barboza and Fabiano were in Superior Court on indictments for conspiracy, receiving stolen goods, possession of a firearm, and possession of harmful drugs. Their cases were continued to November 14th on a defense motion that recent publicity would prevent them from receiving a fair and impartial trial. How the fuck did they keep giving Barboza bail? Like it was some sort of shock that he was back in court less than a week later? Well, it should come as no surprise to you then that they were back in court again the following day. (laughs) Barboza, Femia, Arthur Tashbratos, and Fabiano were arrested by the Vice Squad on Congress Street at about 1.45 in the morning. The head of the DA's homicide squad testified at the bail hearing that he had gotten a call at home on the evening of October 3rd. The caller informed him that Barboza and his compatriots were planning a hit. He passed the information on to the vice squad who followed the men from a downtown lounge bar. The arresting officers saw Barboza, who was sitting in the back seat, pass a gun to Femia in the front seat. They forced the quartet's car to the side of the road and arrested them. 
but they needed a warrant to search the car, so a trip was made to Judge Elijah Adlow's home, where a warrant was issued at 6 in the morning. A search of the car revealed a loaded 45 caliber Army automatic, a quantity of 30 caliber carbine armor-piercing ammunition, and six clips of M1 rifle ammo. In addition, they found a 7-inch dagger and a switchblade knife. The four men were bailed on $1,000 each after being booked at the Milk Street Police Station. Decades later, Frankie Salemi alleged that the cop, Arthur Linsky, planted the gun on Barboza. Did anyone need to plant a weapon, a weapon on Barboza? I mean, come on. Really? Well, don't get me started about Salemi's statements. We'll tear that rubbish apart another time. Back to the $1,000 bail. Garrett Byrne begged for no bail, but the judge refused, saying that he couldn't legally hold the men without it. But he set bail at $100,000 for both Barboza and Femia. It should be noted here that Barboza was already out on bail two times over at this point. $25,000 double surety on illegal gun charges from August, and then $35,000 double surety for the attempt on Arthur Pearson's life. Fitzgerald and Farisi argued that their client's bail should be reduced. Farisi said Barboza was employed by the insurance company and a cafe in Nantasket and that he needed to get back to work. Yeah, okay. <coughs> Sorry. But Judge Spaulding disagreed and both were sent back to Charles Street Jail. From his jail cell, Barboza wrote a letter to Boston Herald reporter James Southwood detailing his and the other's arrests. Who knows what he thought he was accomplishing by doing that? On November 1st, the four men were back in court. They pleaded innocent to charges of conspiracy to receive stolen goods. Barboza and Femi were once again returned to Charles Street. Tosh Bratzos and Patrick Fabiano were released on their own recognizance. The trial date was set for November 21st, and all four waived mental examination. Barboza was desperate to get bailed out, so the story goes that he decided to send Tash Bratzos and Tommy DePrisco out to collect the money he felt was owed to him. But things didn't go quite as planned. Both men were killed, and their bodies were found in the backseat of their car, which was parked in a lot in South Boston the morning of November 15, 1966. DePrisco had been shot four times in the back of the head, and Bratzos twice in the back of the head. They were listed as victims numbers 34 and 35 of the gang ward. Vincent Teresa wrote in his book, My Life in the Mafia, that the story was going around about DePrisco and Brazos attempting to raise $70,000 for Barboza's bail by collecting owed debts was not true. According to Teresa, DePrisco and Brazos went all over Boston shaking down bookies and nightclubs to raise the bail Barboza needed. The last place they went was the 416 Lounge, also known as the Nightlight Cafe. They entered like gangbusters and asked for money to help Barboza out. The patrons, who, which included who included Larry Bione, Phil Wagenheim, Ralphie Chong, and his brother Joe Black, refused their demands. Refusing to take no for an answer, DePrisco and Bratzos attempted to hold them up at gunpoint and demanded they empty their pockets. Quote, we'll take what we want, end quote. DePrisco and Bratzos were then shot, and their pockets were emptied of the $12,000 they had collected from their prior shakedowns. Teresa continued, Now what Bayoni, the La Matina brothers, and Wagenheim didn't know was that there was a police informer in the place, a guy named by, by the name of Joe Lanzi. He was a bartender and part-time owner of the Four Corners Bar, and he was in the joint at the time Bratzos and DePrisco came barging in. Teresa further stated, then, on April 18, 1967, they caught up with the informer, Lanzi. Three of Jerry and Julo's enforcers, Benjamin De Cristoforo, Carmen Gagliardi, and Frank Oredo, were driving through Medford at four in the morning. 
and the front seat of their car was Lanzi, who they'd just shot. Once word got to Barboza, he got word to Chico Amico and ordered him to take out Phil Wagenheim. But the wise guys found out about the plan, and they took out Chico before he had a chance to get to Wagenheim. He was shot outside of Alfonso's Broken Hearts Club, where he'd been trying to shake down some people to help Barboza. According to more than just Vinny's account, Barboza went insane when he heard the news. He called Patriarca a fag and promised to kill everyone in sight for killing Chico. Vinny said that Henry Tamilio directed his men to, quote, go see Butchie, Frankie Maselli of New Jersey, arm of the Gambino family, and get a supply of shotguns and rifles. Barboza's got to get hit, unquote. Vinny went on to say that Raymond Patriarca told him and Henry Tamilio that Joe Barboza is going to get killed in or out of the can. Patriarca continued, you send word to him and that's all there is to it. Yeah, I just don't buy Vinny's tale here. I don't buy any of Vinny's tales, but anyhow. Okay, well, it wasn't long after that that Barboza found out that he was going to be killed. I guess D.A. Byrne told him and two FBI agents who were working on him, Paul Rico and Dennis Condon, told him. They convinced him that Patriarca had double-crossed him and that he was going to have him killed. Barboza was frantic. He didn't want to die, and he didn't want to be an informer. He hated informers. While Barboza may have hated being an informant, but it certainly didn't show, the reality is he wasn't an informant. He was a fiction author and narrator of FBI tales. It's just so similar to how they played Specky O'Keefe with the Brinks trial. History repeating. I guess they figured it worked the first time, so why mess with perfection? The only difference is that Specky O'Keefe wasn't a serial killer. On January 25th, 1967, Barboza, Femia, and Fabiano were convicted and sentenced to four to five years in state prison. FBI Special Agents Rico and Condon approached Barboza and attempted to convince him to testify against the mafia, but Barboza wasn't interested. So the two feds tried a different approach. Jimmy Flemmy's brother, Stevie. According to later FBI reports, Stevie Flemmy convinced Barboza, quote, that his present incarceration and potential for continued incarceration for the rest of his life was wholly attributable to LCN efforts directed by Gennaro, Jerry, and Julo, LCN Boston head. On March 8th, Barboza agreed to talk to the FBI as long as they agreed not to use any of his statements against him. In that meeting, he told the feds that he would go to see Raymond to get approval before he made any moves. In addition, he stated that he was going to kill several people for the slayings of his friends, Amico, Brazos, and DePrisco. His biggest claim slash lie was that he told the feds that he knew what happened in every murder in the area. His only demand was that he would never give evidence that would incriminate Jimmy Flemmy, or as he put it, quote, fry him, unquote. Word of the feds visiting and Barboza being shuttled out by them was leaked to the record American by someone in the prison. By the end of March, Barboza was being interviewed in the federal building in Boston, accompanied by his attorney, John Fitzgerald, who was still carrying on with Dory, Dorothy, and had replaced Spike O'Toole as her live-in lover. You'll also recall that Dorothy had been an informant for the FBI for over a decade at this point. Barboza said he would talk to the agents, but he would not testify to any information that he was furnishing. After his first first meeting with Rico and Condon, Barboza stated that he had concluded that they had a common enemy in the Italian organization, and he wanted to help the FBI obtain evidence against the Italian organization. In return, Barboza hoped D.A. Garrett Byrne would cut him a break on his two pending court cases. He told the feds that he discussed his meeting with them with Jimmy Flemmy, and he told Flemmy that he was considering having Patrick Fabiano cooperate with the FBI. 
Flemmy told him it was an excellent idea. The feds told Barboza that he was making a very serious mistake by talking to other inmates about his conversations with the FBI. In the report from that meeting that was sent from the Boston sack to Hoover, he voiced his concern about Barboza. Quote, this office is aware of the distinct possibility that Baron Barboza, in order to save himself from a long prison sentence, may try to intimidate Fabiano into testifying to something that he may not be a witness to. Joseph Barboza says that he does not know who killed William Maffeo and that he had nothing to do with the murder, unquote. And Joe kept writing letters to James Southwood, including one that ran as a news article on July 9th, 1967 in the Boston Herald Traveler. A letter from Barboza, why I decided to tell. Southwood wrote, quote, a few months ago, Barboza was transferred from the state prison to the Barnstable County House of Correction on Cape Cod for the obvious reason of removing him from the company of men still loyal to the Cosa Nostra. He was placed in isolation there, and only the two FBI agents, Rico and Condon, can get in to see him, end quote. Like I said, Specky O'Keefe. All over again. Uh, Barboza told Southwood, quote, younger inmates at Walpole and Concord would do anything to get in with these people, figuring they would become big men. The office, LCN, likes them to believe this because they bleed every single favorable effort from these disillusioned kids and men then throw them a crust of bread, unquote. Oh, Crimea River, dying to be made. In November of 1967, attorney Johnny Fitzgerald told Rico and another fed, William Welby, that Dorothy Barchard had received a phone call in which the caller indicated that if she did not associate, stop associating with that guy, she and her children could be killed. To make matters worse for Fitzgerald, his wife had received a phone call from a stranger who told her that Fitzgerald was keeping Dorothy. Fitzgerald also stated that he had been told that if he would help them weaken Joe Barboza, they would have Spike O'Toole killed in Concord, where O'Toole was incarcerated in his role for harboring Georgie McLaughlin. Keep in mind that Fitzgerald started carrying a small Beretta in a 32 in July of that year. Like the feds didn't know that. Well. Everyone knew Fitzgerald was living with Dorothy. Well, you know, it's a secret. Come on. The feds asked Fitzgerald who had threatened him, but he refused to reveal the person's name. However, he informed them that he had given the identity of this party to Jimmy O'Toole, and he will probably be in trouble when O'Toole comes out of jail, unquote. Fitzgerald also told the feds that when he was checking around as to who made the telephone calls to his wife and to Dorothy, the office, meaning the, the mafia, had tried to lead him to believe that it was Spike O'Toole's friends, but he'd checked with O'Toole and Spike had told him that it wasn't him. And then Fitzgerald tried to blame his partner, Al Farisi, for his troubles, all but accusing Al of ratting to the mob. At 5.15 p.m. on Tuesday, January 30th, 1968, Fitzgerald left work and walked about a block behind the law office that he shared with Al Farisi and Everett to where he'd parked Barboza's black and gold car. He started the car up before he'd closed his door all the way. This fact saved his life. His body was torn by the explosive force of three sticks of dynamite, each 15 inches long and weighing six pounds, which had been inserted with a coil next to the firewall behind the engine. Shrapnel from the bar bomb hit its surrounding homes and a chunk of the car was hurled into the wall of the Church of the Immaculate Conception. An explosive expert said that it would only have taken about 30 seconds to install the bomb. 
the burglar alarm on the car had been disengaged. Fitzgerald, who was conscious from the time of the explosion until he was put under anesthesia, anesthesia, demanded that Rico and Condon come to see him. The theory has always been that the mob was behind the bombing in an effort to scare Barboza and keep him quiet, because that's what the feds and Fitzgerald claimed. But the man was keeping Dorothy and driving Barboza's car, and Barboza was stuck out in protective custody like a caged animal. Frankie Salemi later alleged that Fitzgerald was also running Joe Barboza's loan shark operation out of his office in Everett. And of all of Salemi's claims, that strikes me as a more credible one. Three strikes and you're out. But who actually planted the bomb for Barboza is still a mystery. It wasn't Salemi and Stevie Flemmy, though, I can tell you that, even though Salemi was later convicted and did 12 years for it. It was done by a professional who really meant to kill Fitzgerald, not just scare him. The claim that the caller offered to bump off Spike O'Toole is what drives it home for me that it was about Dorothy and not about pressuring Barboza not to testify. Rico and Condon contacted Fitzgerald at the Massachusetts General Hospital where Fitzgerald was recovering from his injuries sustained in the car bombing. Fitzgerald said he had come in contact with many criminals whom he believed were all now his enemies. Fitzgerald told the agents that he was going to write a letter to Barboza telling him that because he lost a leg in the bombing, Barboza should turn on these people and provide testimony that would send them all to jail. Rico told Fitzgerald that he would prefer that Barboza testify about whatever he could without Barboza being pressured into testifying against specific individuals. Rico said in his report, if we feel that a later date that Barron is holding out, when they, when we then may ask Fitzgerald's assistant, but we don't want Barron to be motivated by revenge, end quote. After the bar- bombing, Barboza was moved to Fort Knox for his safety. He had a German shepherd to accompany him on his walks. His other companion was a military police officer, John Morris, the same John Morris who would go on to become an FBI agent and partner of John Connolly. More of him to come in season two. We'll be covering more about Barboza throughout the rest of the season and into the first part of season two. Next week, we'll be discussing the gangland victims of 1964, the hitters in our theories. Hope you continue to listen. Please share, subscribe, and leave a review. Bye. Bye. Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.